Welcome to Season 5 of the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom, where we talk with enterprise and technology platform leaders about the people, processes, and platforms that make marketing and customer experience successful, scalable, and sustainable. This is what creates an Agile brand. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom, advisor and consultant for Fortune 1000 marketing and CX leaders and teams as principal and chief strategist at GK5A and best-selling author, keynote speaker, entrepreneur, and Agile certified coach. The Agile Brand Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to teksystems.com. To sign up for the Agile Brand newsletter and get the latest insights and articles on marketing technology and CX, or to purchase a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, go to gregkillstrom.com. You can also find all my books on Amazon and other retailers. And now on to the show. Today, we're going to talk about creating truly accessible interfaces across a variety of mediums and channels. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Yadi Arroyo, VP and Principal VUI Designer at Truist. Yadi, welcome to the show. Hi there, Greg. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, looking forward to talking about this with you. And why don't we start with you giving a little background on yourself and what your role as VUI design at Truist entails? Well, basically, a principal VUI designer specializes in creating and improving voice-based interfaces for digital project, uh, products and services. They could also work on IVR, anything that's voice-related. My title is a misnomer because I'm actually a multimodal designer. So voice is just one of the many things we use to be able to like control the system, right? Viewee designers can work on a variety of projects. In my case, I'm working on virtual assistants, but there's also smart speakers, you know, internet of things, IOT, voice controlled applications. There's really like the possibilities are endless when it comes to Viewee design. At Etruist specifically, I work on, on the chatbot. So that's what I've been working on for the past uh, couple of year and a half. Great, great. And, and for those that are not familiar with Truist, do you mind just giving a, a brief overview of, of what it is, what kind of what kind of business it is and everything like that? Oh, Truist is a bank. So it's a it's it's a mostly like huge regional bank that recently got merged. So if you've heard of SunTrust and BB&T, that's what Truist is. Basically a merger of the two. Great, great. Yeah. And I they have there's plenty of Truist branches in here in D.C. where I where I live. But just wanted to make sure everybody listening had a had some context there. So. Let's get started by want to talk about accessibility and 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 we're going to talk about it in a, in a number of different ways but let's start by talking about it in a broader context. So how would you define an accessible interface and what are some of the dimensions that many people um, may not currently be considering when they talk about accessibility? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, overall, designing uh, accessible products requires a deep understanding of the needs and challenges of people with disabilities and also a commitment to creating inclusive experiences for all users. So that's like a two part, right? One is having empathy for people that are going to use the products, especially the outliers, which tend to be the disabilities, right? Like it tends to be people with minimal you know, eyesight or hearing issues or even mobility or cognitive, right? And, you know, inclusive design is about like not excluding anybody just because they're the out, right? A lot of times we design for the 90%. So there's a philosophy of like, no, design for the 100%, right? Yeah. And make sure that like, even if it's more effort, 
that they're able to do the basic things. Like it's not, it's really about, it's about making things all equal for everybody, right? Like you wouldn't want to not be able to bank just because you're blind. Like that's not fair. Like everyone, and, and also if we're going to add to that, sometimes you can have a disability plus something else. So for example, you could be a disabled person that doesn't speak English. So in that case, it's almost like an outlier of an outlier. So how do you design for that, right? Yeah. It's basically about making things usable for people and not making it seem like a chore. And, and the big the big part is in, including your accessibility partner right at the start of your design. I think that's the number one thing. Like if you have a commitment to inclusive design, part of it is also looping in the accessibility ADA folks. Yeah, yeah. What have you seen? So you work a lot in this space and, and I'm sure you've seen a number of things throughout your work, what what are some of the biggest areas of growth and maybe the maturity of, of this industry with accessible interfaces in recent years? Oh, well, I got into viewing design, voice user interface because of disabilities, right? Like I, I love the idea of being able to have a product that could be voice controlled. So if you can't use your hands for whatever reason, right? And keep in mind that disabilities slash situations could happen, right? I may not be disabled, but I may have a baby in my hands, right? Yeah. So yeah. at that point, we're both the same. We can't use our hands. So what can you do? Voice control. So imagine being able to to be safer, right? So voice control is one aspect of it. I think telematics and, you know, companies like BMW and Mercedes-Benz, there's a lot of like connected car apps out there that enabled you to do really cool stuff with your car while you're driving. It would be crazy if it wasn't voice controlled, right? Like if yeah. you have to tap on it. So I would right, say that's right. one of them, voice voice user interface, especially with Alexa and Siri, right? Like they've really helped like propagate that. Also gesture-based interfaces. So that's kind of cool, right? So we're not just limited to touching or whatever, but imagine your camera being able to decipher a gesture, you know, and that, and that turns into like re- being able to read sign language or being able to read sediment on someone's face. If someone has a frown, you know, you could kind of <laughs> be like, oh, that's not a good thing, you know? Yeah. There's text-to-speech and speech-to-text, which is awesome. Uh, There's also haptic interfaces. So even just the way you touch things and the pressure you use. And of course, there's the standard web accessibility, right? Like there's the WCAG, which which basically has like guidelines for how to create accessible products on web. But really, it's it's beyond web, right? Like people now use their phones. They have remotes, right? Like even your remote sometimes is voice controlled. So there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. Because people are realizing it's not just for accessibility reasons, but for, but for practical reasons, right? Like you want to be able to, to to be multimodal in different ways, depending on the context. Yeah. So yeah. I would say, yeah, I would say for practic- practical reasons, there's a lot of like just really awesome ways to do multimodal stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would imagine that's that's a win for everybody because it is, to your point about designing for the hundred percent and including everybody in that, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different use cases that may benefit some people part of the time, but other people all of the time. Yep. Right. So that's, yep. yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, in a number of the applications of this, um, accessibility and, and these interfaces that you mentioned, um, I think, natural language understanding or NLU applies here. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit more because I know you work a lot in that area. But um, first, for those less familiar, uh, can you explain a little bit what NLU consists of and uh, maybe what are some of the primary, primary applications of it? 
Oh, yeah. NLU is a branch of artificial intelligence that focuses on the understanding of the human language in a way that a computer can understand it and analyze it. Right. So that's that's the little subset area I'm in. NLU is actually a subset of natural language processing, which is NLP. So it's closely related to other NLP technologies, such as speech technology, text-to-speech, and sentiment analysis. Now, there's different ways you can apply NLU, but the primary NLU, I guess the primary applications of NLU that I've seen firsthand where I'm working is like chatbots, right? But elsewhere, you'll see virtual assistants, chatbots, voice-activated things, right? These systems use NLU to understand and interpret the natural language input from users and provide the appropriate responses or actions based on what the user's trying to accomplish. Got it, got it. So obviously there's a lot going on behind the scenes. I mean, just like I, there's a blog post somewhere about like what actually happens when you ask Siri a question or yeah. Alexa or something like that. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that it's deceptively simple, right? But yep. what are what are some of the biggest challenges with getting natural language understanding right? Yeah, that's a really good question because... If it's easy to use, no one ever realizes it's a problem, yeah. right? Right, right. It's when it sucks that people are like, this sucks, right? <laughs> so the first one is intent recognition, right? Are we getting the right intent? Because sometimes, you know, you can, you can program, you can have algorithms, you know, basically the more sophisticated the the NLU, the NLP, you know, whatever engine you're using to, to kind of decipher what the user is saying so that we can translate it to a computer, the more seamless it is, right? But when you start off, you're not, sophisticated, right? Anyone launching something for the first time, there's going to be that like learning curve. So I would say consider intent recognition. That's really hard. Once you fine tune and there's a lot of things that go into fine tuning for intents. So something to consider is like, all right, you know, you have to go back and correct a lot, right? So a lot of it is like looking at what people are using, saying, and then going back and leveraging that data, right? To correct it and, and fine tune it. Another thing to consider is it's hard to recognize entities. So in my field, intent and entities are technical words. And intent is actually like a use case. Like what's the use case? What is the user trying to accomplish, right? Entity are entities you can kind of think of like as nouns, right? If this was a, like a Mad Libs, right? Like you can blank a blank a blank. That's basically my job, right? My job is to configure the blanks and figure out like, okay, pro- programmatically, like how can we cluster all this together so that the computer can read it, can make sense. But at the same time, as the user talks, it actually makes sense like from, from a human perspective, right? The biggest one too in my field, sentiment analysis, analysis is huge, right? Like it's really hard for a computer to read sarcasm. And it's something that we're constantly working on. Like how can you analyze sentiment analysis? That's where like multimodal comes in because you can use words and try to like create like, and there's a lot of really cool like companies out there that are getting close to really fine-tuning the sentiment analysis. But imagine if we can incorporate multimodal, right? Where it's not just voice, but you can see the person's face, right? That would increase the ability. So there's a lot of stuff we can do to kind of mitigate the the difficulties. But I mean, to further explain, there's also language barriers, right? So imagine someone with an accent trying to use, you know, NLU, like they're trying to use Siri, Alexa, and and it's hard to understand them, right? Because maybe English isn't their native language. So overall, like NLU is a key technology for like enabling natural and intuitive interactions between humans and machines. And it really does have a lot of applications everywhere. So that's also a complexity, right? Because the way I use it is different than maybe how like 
another company in non-banking, like in health. Health might be, oh my God, health could be an awesome application for it, right? Because you could even start being predictive about certain symptoms and what diseases they could be linked up to, right? But it all starts with the NLU. What does the user tell you? So I would I would say that's something to consider. Yeah, yeah. And so I think you touched on on a few things here, but where do you see some of the biggest opportunities? Like what what are you excited about when it comes to potential applications for NLU? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, customer service, right? Like yeah. that's number yeah. one. But also that's the most annoying one, right? Because I keep hearing like customer service chatbots suck. I'm like, you're not wrong. <laughs> We're getting mm-hmm. there. But we right. know, like that's the thing. There's some self-awareness that has to happen. So what I'm seeing with chatbots is like they're connecting them to a human when when there's limitations with the chatbot. So that's a really cool application, right? Customer service. And that could be in any field. It could be like from Walmart to like banking to whatever. Uh, healthcare. I think healthcare would be amazing for AI. Also dangerous, right? Because yeah. now you're handling a lot of people's personal data. And, you know, there has to be like some sort of hurdles or like I would say checks and balances in place for that. But if we were to cover that, right, like assuming in a very like ethical world, how would that look like? It would look awesome, right? It would look like, yeah. you know, less doctors having to be involved in the diagnosis. It would. It might be like people being able to confide in a machine because sometimes people don't want to talk about their symptoms with people, right? Yeah. But a machine is a machine. So you may actually be able to be more open with some like something versus someone, right? Um, yeah. Education. Oh my God. I think education by by far, like if we're going to talk about chat GBT, right? That's educational for me, right? If I yeah. want to learn about something instead of like now spending hours and hours on Wikipedia and like all these different search engines, I can just go to chat GPT and get a synopsis, right? So I would say education is huge for AI, for NLU. Imagine a software that's able to create itself based on the learning style of the user, right? So yeah. that's what we're talking about with AI. Entertainment, for sure. I think that's huge. And then also smart homes and IoT, like Internet of Things. I see that being an application for NLU, especially, I mean, because it has been for the past few years, right? Alexa really helped bring it to surface. Siri did. So now that we have these, what I call staples in the industry, people aren't scared of them anymore, right? You have Comcast who has like voice control remotes, right? So right. like we're integrating them in all these different aspects of our life. I mean, at one point I had, a, I guess I had a client that was internet of things. So I, I had everything in my house be, you know, through my, through my phone, basically. I would turn on my yep. lights. I would customize certain things. When I went on vacation, I would turn off certain things, turn certain things on. I mean, it was fun. I, I personally am anti, I'm like, actually, let me kind of clarify. I'm not anti-technology, but I'm pro protection of my privacy. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. As many are. Yeah. So I would say that's the only caveat, right? As, as, as awesome as things can be, the flip side is, well, we have to have safeguards in place to make sure no one's like taking advantage of that large, you know, language models. Cause there's a lot of like data exposed out there in addition to like, you know, large language models, which we call LLMs, that consolidate all this data, right? So that's something I kind of want to bring up too, that even though there are opportunities, there's also an opportunity for for us to be vigilant and make sure that no one really takes advantage in the back. Before we continue, let's take a quick break. If you're like many marketing leaders today, you're inundated with a need to improve the customer experience across an increasing number of channels and touch points, all while ensuring your team is performing well, 
innovating, and continuously improving. So how do you find the time to determine what's next for you, your team, your brand, and your customers? My company, GK5A, can help. Whether it is advisory services, evaluation of marketing technology platforms and solutions, or digital agencies and implementation partners, or assistance with creating strategic roadmaps and prioritization of efforts, we've done it all and served as an ally to Fortune 1000 brands and industries like financial services, healthcare, consumer electronics, professional services, and more. You can learn more about these services and contact us at www.gk5a. That's www.gk5a.com. Now let's get back to the show. So um, one, you, you touched on this a little bit and, you know, just mentioning ChatGPT and, and some other things, but I, I did want to talk about um, the role of AI beyond NLU is certainly uh, utilizes AI, but um, beyond that, even, you know, the role of AI and accessibility and, and just building both accessible as well as alternative inter- interfaces. So where do you see AI playing a a role in accessibility and and some of these other novel interfaces um, beyond NLU. Oh man, this is this is an awesome question because this is the the stuff I live for, right? I think computer vision is one of them, right? Like the stuff that you can do with AI now, it doesn't have to be a chat GPT, right? It can be behind the scenes. It could be like helping and aiding in certain things. So one of them is computer vision. I could see that being a thing like where AI powered computer uh, vision technologies can help people with visual impairments to interact with their environment, right? So for example, uh, optical character recognition is technology we've had forever, but being able to apply existing technology in novel ways with the power of like AI, you know, can really kind of like help, you know, set the scene for people. So for example, you know, OCR and scene analysis can help identify objects, people, obstacles, you know, for people that have low vision, right? And convert it to audio or even braille. So, I mean, that's 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 number one, yeah. awesome, right? Two, uh, I would say captioning and subtitling because it used to be a very manual thing. And now that we have, you know, the ability to recognize speech and like speech to text and all this good stuff, imagine not having a human do it. And I think that's what a lot of like companies currently use. They use like automated captioning and subtitling, which I think is important, especially if we're, if we're talking about people that cannot hear well or cannot hear at all and or people that talk a different language, right? So yeah. being able to communicate and get across your message regardless of like who the audience is, is awesome. Sign language recognition, which I touched uh, touched upon like earlier, I think that's huge, right? Like yeah. we're limited, like we were at least at one point, like in terms of the modalities of, of which a user can kind of input and communicate with a computer. But now imagine being able to use your camera to sign <laughs> to sign commands, right? Like that's yeah. that's not far-fetched. That's a reality. Uh, the same thing with predictive text. We all see it in our Gmails. We see it like with Grammarly. There's other places that have kind of like used, you know, existing technologies piggybacked on them and then leveraged AI to kind of be predictive in terms of what a person could say or should say, right? Uh, I mean, of course, the last one is like, I would say viewing interfaces, AI-powered like voice user interface technologies can be used to create voice-activated devices and applications that are accessible to people with physical disabilities. Yeah, yeah. And so you touched on the some of the data privacy and you know just considerations that both consumers as as well as organizations should should have when when utilizing AI. But you know, just wanted to 
ask you as well, like what, what are some other things or maybe even just to dive deeper into that, you know, what are, what are some things that organizations should watch out for when they're utilizing AI in their interfaces? You know, I literally talking to you because you ask all these questions that make me think, you know, like <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, well, you know what bias? I think that's a personal yeah, thing for me, yeah. like bias in AI algorithms, uh, transparency, another big thing for me. Like, I don't mind if you capture my data, just be transparent as to what data and why. Right. And to yeah. some extent, help me sh shape my own algorithm. Example, YouTube. Like a lot of people complain about it's YouTube, you know, the YouTube algorithm because it serves up, you know, videos that they don't like. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it has visibility. I don't think it has transparency. I don't think it has a, a way for me to adjust it. Right. It just is what it is. That's what I don't like. Right. Yeah. And, and thank God YouTube is like entertainment type of algorithm. So it's not really affecting my life. But what if we talk about banking? Right. You don't yeah. want bias in banking and transparency like that's important, too. I would say security and privacy is another concern uh, when you're dealing with people's data. Not only are you dealing with the transparency aspect of like, why am I capturing this data? Right. And, and how am I going to use it? But then you also have to protect it, you know. And, and the good thing is uh, about me working in banking, I, I, I have to deal with regulations. Right. So I know at least in the world I live in, it's slightly more protected. Right. Yeah. But yeah. I can't say that about other places. Right. So I've seen startups where like regulations be damned. Right? It's like, oh, no. <laughs> like, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. But but it's true. Right. That's why we ended up with like FTX and all these other places outside of the AI. Right. There's a lot of if human nature can be corrupt. Yeah. Therefore, we have to have safeguards. Uh, the other thing is user experience. Like AIs may be cool, but if the user experience of being able to integrate transparency and, you know, privacy and security and, and, you know, reducing bias. If the experience itself sucks, then that's a problem. And right now we're still like, it's still a new field and it gets better each year. I feel like it gets sharper. It gets like, it just yeah. gets slicker. Right. So with that, you also have to keep, you know, keep, keep in mind that user experience is along that, right. You can have a smooth experience, but if it's biased, it's still not a good experience. Right. Yeah. Ethical. And then ethical considerations would be my last point. Like, are we doing the right thing with, with AI? Are we solving a problem or are we creating? Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I wanted to go back to the the point about transparency because, uh, you know, I thought, I think you make really great points as far as the, it's, we need to be transparent to the consumer about, okay. you know, what this, you know, it's a, it's a black box, you know, off, it's okay. often called as far as that goes. But transparency also, as, as you well know, is, if the developers of the tools themselves don't know how the machine is making decisions, yep. then, you know, it's, it's kind of both, both sides of that. So it's like, for me, I'm, I actually like, uh, I would prefer to converse with AI uh, through chat or whatever than on the phone with a human. So I'm, oh, wow. I may be strange, but, um, and I've had bad experiences with, with the automated chats, of course, too, but mm -hmm. I would rather take my chances and then get on a phone as, as a last resort. And yet at the same time, you know, I, I want to make sure that the machines on the other end, that, that the engineers understand what it's doing and how it's yep. doing it and why it's making those recommendations. So how do you balance, you know, the, the novelty and the, you know, the, the coolness of, of, AI doing all of these things that humans could never do, or it would take them forever to do with just trying to understand how it's doing it. So you are protecting against bias and, and all those things. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. 
personally, I'm in a safe space where in banking, we're so risk adverse. Right. That right. like, like that is the first question we ask. We start with the principles. We start with the essay, at, at least where I'm from. Yeah, I don't know about yeah. other banks. I will tell you that other banks can do it their way. But the way we start is, all right, what's the human problem we're trying to solve? And then go from there. Keeping in mind that we have high regulations and that we have high oversight. Right. Yeah. Now, if I were to take away my safe space. Right. What I would say is. There's there's a lot of just personal checking that you have to do, a lot of research that you have to do, a lot of asking, right? Because once you put out a product, you can't just let it run. I think sometimes AI is missing that human oversight. I, I'm yeah. a big proponent of like, don't let it run wild, right? Like some people are very scared of AI and they're like, oh my God, the possibilities. I'm not scared as much as I'm like precautious in terms of, well, we have to keep an eye on it because you know, AI is prone to hallucinations. So that's a technical term for when, you know, an AI spits out something and it, it's gibberish. So with ChatGPT, yeah. it's it's really good. Like, by the way, ChatGPT is amazing. But even ChatGPT has a bunch of hallucinations. Like if you look up whether cows, you know, lay eggs better than a duck or something. Like there's one use case <laughs> that someone showed me. And, and ChatGPT was so confident about cows and their eggs. You know? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, and yeah. Like, and I would believe it. Like if I was an alien coming down to Earth reading this for the first time, the way it was right. out, it sounded so professional and so real. But then as a human, I'm like, cows don't lay eggs. <laughs> you know? So that's something to kind of keep in mind that there's a lot of hallucinations that could happen like with an AI. So I think something to consider too is like if you have human oversight, you can catch those, right? If you have human oversight or even like self-awareness within the system, like if if you have if you have AI to spot patterns, right? That's actually kind of interesting because you can actually have it be aware of its own issues, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I would say like if you're gonna consider like AI, right? Do something that isn't hard because a lot of people want to go for the big and flashy, and the big and flashy costs millions or billions of dollars, right? Yeah. I would personally just automate if I can. And use AI for automating things that are like, I, I would say bulk in bulk. Like they're not hard to do. They're just, you know, they're not hard or challenging. It's just tedious, right? So any yeah. work that's tedious and there's a lot of it, that's that that qualifies for AI, right? Especially yeah. if there's like little risk to the user. If this is like backend processes or even checking for fraud, that's a good use case, right? What I would not focus AI on is like, let's try to figure out credit risk. It's like, not yet. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. some places that can do it because they're banks and they have millions of dollars. Mom and pop shop guy may not be able to do that. Right. So how can we make it accessible for the people that maybe don't have millions of dollars in their pocket? Right. Because AI yeah. started and a lot of people do just started in their backyard or in the garage or in their back room. Right. Where they're just good at coding and they do stuff. And, you know, some of the best AI coders I've met are just homegrown. So if you're a homegrown person, like you shouldn't stop coding, but figure out like, what problem am I solving? And am I going to get in trouble? <laughs> right? Like if this goes out of control, will I be in trouble? And if you can answer those two questions legitimately, then maybe you're on to something. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Well, yeah. And so I've got one, one last question for you. you. You just gave some great advice there, but going back to the accessible interface part of our discussion, you know, for those, those organizations that, you know, a lot of the people listening to the show, they, they do work for larger organizations, um, you know, with with the with the deeper pockets, but not always getting accessibility right. And, oh, you know, what what would 
what would one piece of advice for them be if they, you know, they know they need more accessible interfaces, but not sure where to start? What, what would you recommend? Well, uh, test. I test with disabled people. Uh, there, you'd be surprised how many few people actually have testers that are blind or developers that are blind. Like I actually worked at one bank where our lead developer was blind for accessibility. I mean, that was awesome, right? Because yeah, like yeah. you could not get around that. And and she would let you know, like, this sucks and this is why, right? So we yeah. had the privilege of having that. Some places I've had, like I've worked with accessibility. We didn't have actual people that were disabled testing the devices. So you could tell, right? Because it wasn't made for them. So I would say, uh, number one, invest in an accessibility team to uh, invest in an accessibility team that has access to disabled people for testing. And three, listen, listen to the tests, listen to the results. I mean, in the very least, if you don't have a blind person or someone has limited mobility or can't move their hands as well, right? Because there's also issues, right? Like you may not be disabled, but you may be temporarily unable to do something, yeah, right? Yeah. Literally get in their shoes. I had one boss tell me, oh, I design all my designs in the bright sun <laughs> and with very low contrast. Because if I can see it in that view, then most people with low visibility can do it and it'll show contrast. And I'm like, what the hell? And I tried it and I'll be damned. It worked. You know, yeah, I was like, yeah, oh, nice. you know, put yourself in that situation. And that's one example. There's other ways you can do it. Like when I design for voice, sometimes I'll, I'll listen to what our experiences. Sometimes experiences aren't voice experiences until you use assistive technology, like let's say JAWS or any type of, you know, reader. So once I do that and I realize, oh, my God, this is too long, <laughs> you know, we need yeah, to adjust. Yeah. So even just trying it out yourself, even if you're not, you know, you don't have a disability of any sort, empathizing with them. Right. I would say if you have money, invest in it. If you don't have money, empathize. Regardless, empathize. Right. Like that's something <laughs> yeah. that we should all care about. And, you know, whether we like it or not, we're going to grow old. Right. Whether we become disabled is another thing, but our vision might get worse our mobility might get worse. Our cognitive abilities might get worse. So in the very least, design for ourselves in the future. You know, do ourselves a favor. So that's kind of how I think of it. I mean, to be blunt, I love my accessibility partners, right? Like I, I got into this field for a reason, mostly because I have a child that that's disabled, right? So I know that whatever product I'm going to create, it's going to help him in the future. And additionally, like just having older parents, right? Like my mom yeah. has, our, you know, arthritic hands, so she can't really move her hands that much, but she can use her voice. Right. So it's like having that empathy and knowing people helps. Right. Like me personally, I know people and, you know, they'll come to, you know, with complaints to me and I'll be like duly noted, you know, like <laughs> duly noted. But, yeah, I would say big companies should invest in, in accessibility and not just that, but like a culture of wanting to be accessible and, you know, it, including them from the very beginning. Right. Like that's my mantra, like include them as early as you can without like bombarding them with needless information. Right. Because sometimes they're just like in the beginning stage of research and it's not ready to show. That's fine. Right. I'm talking about when you're like yeah. have designs ready, you have ideas ready, you're getting approvals done. They should be in the room. Don't exclude them. Invite them. And if you don't have them, become them. Right. Take classes. I mean, I took a lot of classes. I took like six hours worth of classes one day just because I was like. Yeah you know, wanting to learn more. And, and that's what everyone on the, on the team did. We eventually all went to uh, DeCue. DeCue University has like these online courses for accessibility. And I think we have like an enterprise like license, right? So I would say that too, like 
invest in licensing, invest in courses, get your people up to date, incentivize people to want to do better products for everybody and be inclusive, you know, check out YouTube and, and look up, you know, inclusivity videos that helps out too. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, no, thank, that's great, great advice. Well, yeah, it's been been great talking with you here. Um, again, I'd like to thank Yadi Arroyo, VP and Principal VUI Designer at Truist for joining the show. You can learn more about Yadi and Truist by following the links in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast, brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.gregkilstrom.com. That's G-R-E-G-K-I-H-L-S-T-R-O-M.com. To get a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, visit my website or you can find it on Amazon or other retailers. The Agile brand is produced by Missing Link, a Latina-owned, strategy-driven, creatively-fueled production co-op. From ideation to creation, they craft human connections through intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Until next time, stay agile.